getting brought into the digital hall of fame i didn't invent the internet <laughs> but i did help build communities that made the most perhaps from that <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Wonderful People podcast with a wonderful person. Not just people, but just one wonderful person today is Mr. Phil Jones. So Phil is no longer the host today or the co-host. He's now the guest. Round of applause, everyone. So in all the podcast episodes, well, Phil's clapping. There we go. He's happy. All the episodes we've done, we've never actually... You know, spoken to Phil Jones himself, who's had an incredible career and had an incredible, got some really amazing insight into, you know, his journey and the things that he's done over the last several, several hundred years. So we thought today is a special episode. I'm actually going to chat with Phil. So welcome as a guest, mate. Oh, it's lovely. This is really nice, Dan. And although we're doing this, like, communication-wise, you're in a, a new room because I can see lots of pictures of your extended family behind you. <laughs> I've got my Benel Cooks behind me. Lovely. Ready to go, mate. Ready to go. So, Phil, I'm going to ask you the same question then that we ask all of our guests. If you were to be stuck in a lift with someone, who would it be and why? Well, you're going to think this is a bit of a cop help, Dan, because no one's actually ever spoken about family, but it would need to be a decent-sized lift because I'd want Babs, my wife, yeah. and my two kids, Claire and PJ, in there because Babs just makes me laugh. So it doesn't matter how long we're in that lift, I know that she's going to make me laugh. And I just love being alongside Claire and PJ. They're just like, amazing people. And PJ's so smart, he'd find a way of getting us out of there. He'd just find a way of hacking the computer in that lift and <laughs> getting the whole thing moving. So so definitely kids. And if the if the lift was big enough, the grandkids as well. Gosh, you'd even have the grandkids in the lift. Well, that, that could be awkward if they wanted the toilet. Yeah, exactly. Could even have them in there. I was with you with Babs and PJ and Claire. I was with you on that, but then you said the grandkids. That's that's a very uh, busy lift. <laughs> <laughs> That it is a very busy list. Now, I think I will, maybe we just stick with the kids and babs, but that that's who I go with. Has anyone else said their, their spouses? I don't think they have. No, no. There was one that came close to it, uh, but then he decided on Arsene Wenger. <laughs> 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 it was a joke between his wife and Arsene Wenger, I think. So, yeah. um, But I would def I'd definitely go babs just because she is a very funny person and you could get lonely in a lift with someone that didn't make you laugh great great answer that is that is absolutely the right answer so look Phil I want to just go dive into your career because obviously you know we've had pub chats and got to know each other very well over the last couple of years but for those people that don't know you I mean you've been in the industry over 50 years in the creative industry you've received so many accolades but I know that one major one was your induction into the first ever Beamer Digital Hall of Fame, which is, I think was over a decade ago. It was, yeah. And you also voted as one of the 10 most influential people in digital at the time. Yeah. Alongside the likes of Sir Tim Berners-Lee, Martha Lane Fox, Sir Johnny Ive of Apple fame. But yet, but I mean, that is amazing. But obviously, your career didn't start in digital. Tell us a little bit about life before digital. About where did it all begin? Well, I think that's, in a way, what makes... It all a bit weird because winning awards for digital you couldn't have been further away from digital than what i 
actually trained as. So I've very much from Manchester, uh, from the red side of Manchester rather than the blue side, as you've found out over these various episodes. But it was Manchester in the 60s, uh, the Dennis Law, Georgie Best era of football. And I joined a printing company as an apprentice, did a five-year apprenticeship in a printing company whose biggest client was Manchester United. Aye. So a lot of what we typeset and printed were the Manchester United football programs, which in those days, they all had a token on the back. So if you collected enough tokens, you could get tickets for any of the, the matches. And my timing was quite good back then, because 1968, they got to the European Cup final. And I suddenly had more friends than I'd ever had before because they were all asking me for these tokens <laughs> off the back of the programs. And a bunch of us went down there from Manchester. Did you go to the final? Yeah, we were there in 1968 behind the goal. Wow. Uh, which was amazing in itself. But even more amazing, like one of the goals was scored by Brian Kitt, who lived about two miles away from me in North Manchester. And one of the kids that you saw growing up, a bit like in today's world, that would be Martin Rashford. Right. But back then, you saw these young kids coming through. And so my, my apprenticeship was actually very much type orientated. And uh, when I actually finished that five year apprenticeship, you got what were called indentures. So it meant you could go and work anywhere in the country and get a job as long as you had your proof that you had done your apprenticeship. And in those days that you were a member of the trade union. So it's like the, the world has changed a lot since then. But the, uh, and I was a member of the National Graphical Association and had done my five years and I was therefore a free agent. So that was, that was the background that had nothing at all to do with uh, the world that I've been in for the last 20 years, but actually gave me credibility because it, it meant that I had something that no one could take away, that, that those five years were worth it. And moving from job to job in London, it was actually quite easy because there was a proof that I'd, I'd been through and had all the right training. And I, I loved it. But I, I, at the end of those five years, I decided that I didn't really want to stay in Manchester. I wanted to do something different. And that during those five years, I'd written a book of soul lyrics. And I wanted to be a writer. And I kept, uh, in, in those days, it was Melody Maker and New Media, New Media Age, not New Media Age, New Musical Express. NME. And I used to look at all the ads in the back. And the NME, that was it. And I used to see all these little ads saying, a musician was lyricist. And so I, most of them involved sending money, which were all a big con. But there was a few that weren't. And I actually found this guy, his name was Dave Cook, and ended up making contact with him. In those days, it was all by cassette. But he told me he had several hundred replies, that all by letter back then, because there was no email. And he narrowed it down to about six, and he wrote a song, a tune, and asked those six people to write a lyric around that tune, send it back, again in the post. Uh, and I was one of those. Then it got down to the last two, and then it ended up with me and him. So we actually wrote several songs together but that was in the night of 73 era but that's the reason i ended up coming down to london i never knew that 
No, I know. It's not one of those stories that you get, well, this is why you're interviewing me now, aren't you, mate? <laughs> so the book, was in the, the book was in the library in my hometown in Manchester, and I actually felt really good about it. I thought I was going to be the next Bernie Taupin, who was Elton John's writer, or Al Stewart, or Dory Preview, and had all these people that I wanted to be like, and that's how I ended up coming to London. Right. And that's when I met Babs, of course, but, you know, that's, that's for another story. So, the rest is history, as they say. Yeah, that's my background. Loved music, loved football. I, I played football all the time. But all of a sudden, I'm in London. Uh, I only knew one person, which is an uncle that lived in Clapham. <laughs> to start again from scratch. Amazing. Well, so so let's, let's bring that back onto agency life, because, I mean, there's probably... Um, you know, two versions of a Phil Jones podcast as the agency world and the podge world. And then there's all the other things that you've done alongside that. But back onto agency world and agency life. I mean, you then you got involved with an agency APT, a business APT, and you, you helped to grow that into one of the top typography studios in the country. So how did you do that? How did you stand out at that time? And what was it that enabled you to become so, so renowned, become so well known? I think at the time, it, I can't underestimate where humour and fun came into it because there were lots of typesetting companies who, and they all took themselves very, very seriously. You know, it was one of those things where the advertising agencies had type directors and they wanted to work with the best of the best. And a lot of those companies, they really did take it seriously and it wasn't fun. And there were, at the time, there were brilliant typographers. Roger Kennedy at Saatchi and Saatchi's or Dave Wakefield at BMP, Maggie Lewis at JWT. And the agencies around them all felt they needed to be serious. And uh, we uh, were three lads who set up in the Walworth Road, me and my two mates. And the area was a bit scummy, to be honest, back then. So 224 Walworth Road. And we went more towards designers, more so than the ad people at the time. And we were working with lots of the up-and-coming design agencies and established design agencies. And we called ourselves APT. The APT was actually three letters that had come from ATP, which for the previous two years, I'd been, I'd been writing kerning and spacing programs for typefaces, for linotype, because there was new technology that was coming in. It, things had moved away from metal, they'd moved away from monophoto, and they'd moved to these new technologies with film strips and uh, glass grids and so on and so on. But the spacing on the type was never that great. And I was really into it, and I spent about two years writing these Kearney programs. And anyone thinking, looking at it back now would think, how, how could you actually spend that amount of time with a typeface? But, and I loved it. And we ended up building a reputation. And we started our company, and it was called Advanced Typographic Program, which was Linotypes, like automated Kearney program. But it was automated, but it had no basis. And we created that. So we just started ABT with the three of us. And it was fantastic. We just were designers were using those they'd love the fact that we would spend so much time and effort on making every little piece of work look beautiful 
back then it was mainly pieces of packaging that for a design group would be working with um, a waitrose or whoever and the amount of type was small but it had to be more beautiful because it was a small amount so we just we loved that we built a reputation based on quality but we also brought in the fun elements i started a five-a-side football tournament right which was the apt five-a-side tournament in the 1980s and the we had an ad agency league we had a design agency league and we had a student league like youngsters from all the colleges around the country and just by doing that you're building up a network but it was a real live network people that actually had to make their way to a location get stripped off put the kit on and actually play against each other for trophies so we there at male and female so we actually had we had a women's league way before women's football started to be taken seriously wow this was back in the 80s and it was lovely so the design agencies of the day would put in a, a female team and a male team and we would make all that work and key areas i think then that differentiated us which going back to your point how did you become differentiate we created a set of type books and those type books were the apt type books we instead of i mentioned that a lot of the agencies were quite took themselves very seriously and type had to be a serious thing we got griffith jones who was at the time uh you, you may you know griffith jones yeah yeah like, he's an old man now he's a lot younger than he would but he was very very funny guy and he happened to be dating one of my clients a design agent called the small back room and they were designing our type books and i asked thinking the answer would be no i said why don't we get griffith jones to write the introduction to our type books and he did and it was just like a really funny two or three page intro that sort of lightened the whole subject and then we had these three volumes they were huge there's a, i've still got a set here at my house and we get we were giving them away to all the art colleges around the country so i would go and give a, a copy to the students at newcastle or manchester or newport but i would go and chat to the students about typography and leave the books with with them and at the time my two partners thought it was a bit of a waste of money because they both thought that for a start they thought it was me having a jolly just going to the colleges and having fun with the students but a few years later when all those students were in work and working for design agencies whichever agency they joined they were looking for the apt type books because that's what they had learned of they've actually been marking Brilliant. up type using our books so when they came down to london they were ringing my company i just said oh could we get a set of your type books and so it was one of those little game changers but nobody at the time knew it would be a game changer that's brilliant um and there was another little thing we did with the i think most people especially running creative businesses they they wanted to do their own identities because they thought why would you bring in an outside company to do something that you can do yourself and we did the opposite we actually did hire a design agency to come and rebrand us when we were small when we were probably only 30 people 
and we got this design agency to actually look at our brand, look at what we were becoming known for, and then refresh everything. And they they come up with this lovely idea that was all around three dancing men. And in like as it's impossible to explain it verbally, but it <laughs> was one of those things that was a bit of a game changer because we started to use it in every way possible and instead of in in those days you had to deliver your typesetting to the design agencies but instead of delivering it on a motorbike or in a van we actually bought london taxis sprayed them up in the color of the agency had the logo on the side and they we had three london taxis apt taxis just doing deliveries which also came in handy for the five side football tournaments because we were sending the taxis to design agencies to pick up their teams, take them to the elephant castle. And but it was just a lot of, a lot of things that always had humor in the middle of it. Brilliant. I think is, and, and then the quality of the work was always good, but in terms of that differentiation, I, I think it was just having a bit of a laugh with people and becoming a friend to your clients rather than just being, um, a supplier. So, and that, that took a bit of doing, and that was my two, two partners, Ken and Derek, both lovely, lovely people. And we became friends with a lot of the clients. So brilliant. That was about it really, that I'm sure there were other things. Exactly. I'm sure there were. And, and, I, and I think, you know, I've heard other stories as well, which you won't sound apart, but, um, not long after that, you ended up sort of selling APT and then moving into this whole world of digital and then ended up kind of running one of the UK's first ever digital agencies. So you've gone from this world of typography and the expertise there straight into the world of digital. So tell us about that. How did that happen? Well, first of all, the selling of APT was one of those things where because we were building up this nice brand and because we were building up a nice reputation, we were getting people, agencies coming to talk to us with a view to buying us. And we had three that all happened within a fairly short period of time. And and to be absolutely honest, the three of us, myself and my two partners, we were we weren't very sophisticated. We didn't really, you know, when you're planning ahead, we'd gone from the three of us when we started to about fifty or sixty by the time we were being approached. And it was and it was still growing. It was like a really big market. Now this agency came and said they made us an offer based on a three-year run out which we all thought just sounded really good our houses were all security for the business and we were all worried that if something turned and went the wrong way that we might we might lose like everything so and it, and back then they made the wives sign as well the banks made the wives sign to say that they agreed that they could lose your house so, so babs had had to sign, and my two partners, their wives had had to sign. Wow! So it was, it was although it was all going well and it felt great, it was still risky. So we decided to sell, and during that three-year run out, we went to about hundred staff. So it was quite a lot of growth. If you think for a typesetting studio, that became one of the largest studios, and but we we were built up on those. The fun things that I mentioned, we actually made for our Christmas parties were always at big events. Like I think it was Tottenham Court Road where we had one and 
we made a record to send out to all our clients and actually made our own album using Capital Radio Studios. And we sent our clients boxes of reindeer poo, which were actually chocolate raisins. But <laughs> you'd send out anything that to create a line of, it, I don't know what you'd call it these days, it'd be more like your social networking. But back then it was, you know, someone received a box of reindeer poo. <laughs> it can only be from APT because that was like right. the, the way it was. Um, I'll, I at the end of the sale, I decided to leave, and my two partners stayed on. They stayed with the business that was now owned by another company. I decided to leave, and I had a year where I, I was working for. I went back a step and started to work for the companies that made the equipment that we'd been using for all those years and started to to work with the other suppliers, the people who'd been my rivals for many, many years, suddenly became my clients. And as I was doing that year, I was traveling quite a bit, and I was looking at, in America, there was an organization called Typographers International Association, and there was another one called the Advanced Typographers Association, and I really enjoyed going to America and seeing how they worked, how how people in New York were working, uh, Chicago. And there was a company in Toronto that I saw that were doing really interesting things with a client in Toronto where the by then the Apple Mac had come out and it was quite a new, though it not quite a new, it was a very new thing. And it meant that the designers wanted to do the work themselves but they didn't have all the skills and this company in, in uh, that i saw in toronto instead of seeing it as a threat they were actually helping their clients and putting in systems to the clients and putting in their staff and building a relationship where they where they share any savings or costs so i had this idea in my mind uh, when i got a phone call from someone you've interviewed on this podcast, Trevor Chambers, and Trevor had joined a studio called Real Time Studio. And they were quite a young management team. There were four of them, and they were all much younger than, than I was. And they were all multi-talented, but very, very creative. And De and Trevor thought there was a role there for someone to come in and, and help them become the MD and actually help them do something with this little studio and phoned me and asked if I was interested. And his timing was just perfect. It was right. just that I'd had the year off and I could work, I could go and get a proper job. And I went and joined this little group, um, Andy, Chris, Trevor, Keith, myself. And I was of the five of them. I was the, I was the elderly statesman, if you like, but I had this idea and started to go to some of the clients that we were bringing in, suggesting that we actually put systems in their agencies and that we help them build them and run them. Uh, one of them was WCRS, another agency, one was uh, Euro RSCG, Evanson Scott, and they were all like nice, good size agencies and they bought the idea. Uh, Anderson Consulting was another one before it became Accenture. And it ended up, it ended up being a massive turning point for this business because we ended up building teams of people inside our clients that it then meant, apart from 
securing the relationship and they didn't have to go and try and do it all themselves. But it also meant we had a line into those agencies who were the first people to start getting digital requests from their clients. And because their clients were asking them about, in the early days of digital, this was before the internet, but in the days of interactive CD-ROMs, they were being asked to, could they do things? They were coming to us because we were seen as being more techie, uh, not techie by today's standards, techie by those days standards. And it was fantastic because the doors opened and we started to, we being myself and Trevor and the team started to hire a different sort of person, people that we'd never hired before. We'd never had technology specialists who spoke a language that we couldn't understand. But we were used to running big studios and we were used to working 24 hours a day. I mean, day, day shifts and night shifts. And so that was the turning point. And I would say that in the mid nineties, when we had four or five of these satellite operations, that's really when the internet hit. And we, we did uh, a website for the first big digital event in London, which was called Multimedia 96. And there were all lots of stands at this, this show. And each of the stands were people who were, who were early into digital and were talking about what they could do. And we turned ours into a really fun stand again with the humor, but we had every, everyone in our team was dressed wearing a football strip because it tied in with the Euros football tournament that was on and it was around about that same time but it got a lot of press we had people at the times newspaper coming to ask about digital and then doing a piece in the times about what we were doing as a studio so we we like very quickly started to become known for it and through the football connection uh, Canon were then sponsors of the England football team or Canon UK, and the guy that was the marketing director at Canon said to me, you know quite a bit about digital, uh, we need to do a website. That Nobody had websites then. There was Canon did not have a website, so it wasn't like we need to upgrade a website, it was we need a website. He said, I haven't got a clue where to start, would you help me write the brief? And then if you help me write the brief, I'll make sure that you're on the pitch list for the for it when the time comes. And so between mainly Trevor and I and a few of our techies, we helped them write the brief and then pitched for the Canon website in 1996 and won it. So we suddenly had one of the biggest brands in the world. Wow. And we were building their website from scratch. And that was a turning point. And from Canon UK, the people in Canon Europe wanted to build a website. And because they'd had good feedback from Canon UK, we, we the same the, the people that did all of the Canon Europe stuff. And then the luckiest break of all was I got a phone call from a guy called Bob Shevlin, who was American, but he was ringing from Italy and he was running the diesel digital offering. And he phoned me up and he said, I've, I've just seen the work you've done for Canon. And 
He said, I've got a situation here in Italy where the owner of diesel wants to use local people, and but they're not up to it. They're not up to where they need to be for me to work with them. I'd like to find a way of us working together. Hey, can I come and see you? And he flew in from Italy, came and saw me in our offices, which were then in Soho Square. We'd gone all, all posh by then. And to cut long story short, that was him. It was a turning point because all of a sudden we'd become quite a cool digital agency. We were suddenly doing all the work for Diesel online and it just went bananas after that. So I was saying 96, 97, 98 was a period where digital for, for us as a, an agency became a real game changer. We, was, we were being seen as people that were leading from the front and, and it was fun. It was also incredibly scary because both Trevor and I had come from a traditional background. So you're learning very, very quickly. And if, if things went wrong, they went, they could go very wrong quite quickly in the middle of a big, big, big project. And then I would say the, the final big game changer in the real time days was what is now Accenture, but was then Anderson Consulting. They were looking to outsource all of their in-house design team. And that was, and it was 25 people. Wow. So, and the, they, they had a partner that uh, came in to the agency and he's, he was asking questions about why they were doing all this stuff themselves. Why were they employing designers? Why were they employing illustrators, art workers, project managers? And he questioned it, questioned it, and they decided that actually they wanted to outsource all of it. And they put that out to tender. And one of our lucky, lucky, lucky breaks was that uh, I knew somebody in there that I'd done a favor for years earlier, and he just put our name forward as one of the companies that was going to pitch for this. And it was quite a big deal. And there were, when it got to the final three, it was uh, Martin Sorrell, WPP, and I think he was in on the actual presentation to, to them. It was another big group, and it was Trevor and I from real time and we were like we were like the odd ones out really because it's we were we were probably the least likely to win it but again when you're doing your pitching to clients i think bringing in a bit of humor making it more personal i think that's what we were good at and one of the things that we said we would do is that if we ended up winning the project and their staff ended up joining us that we would future-proof the, the staff because we would train them all on digital. We'd get them into doing stuff that would mean that they weren't going to be out of work a year later, two years later. And it touched a nerve with the, the main partner. He could see that we were quite a genuine company. He could also see that we, by the uh, portfolio that we were showing, that we were one for the future. And he decided we were trustworthy and we got the job and that was a wow. 10 million pound over five years it was basically guaranteed two million pound a year to us as the, the agency and it meant us taking on all the staff 
but it was it just completely altered the game in terms of wow. us in size. We went from being can't remember how many we had at that time. May have been fifty, fifty or so. We're suddenly like eighty people, and then you've got then you have the management issues that go with that. But it was it was just a lovely time, bit scary. Uh, less, lots of success stories and lots of ones where you think, oh, she could have done better there, but part of the learning curve. Are you enjoying our podcast? Remember to subscribe, share, and leave us a review. I mean, there's, I, I love those stories. What, one thing I want to ask is how did you manage, no, you're building teams, right? You're building great teams. You're having to employ new people. You're having to kind of, you know, you're, you're juggling just twice now. You're juggling growth and finding great talent. How did you manage that? How did you manage to sort of sustain it with the with the talent and the people around you? That's a hard question. That it, with all the issues now, uh, the way that you you're scared of talking to your staff in a certain way now because you'll get sued for saying something or right um, being accused of being a bully or being accused of of something. Back then, we used to just have a laugh with all of the staff. We, you'd get all the senior management team that were all in it together, and if you said something to one of the staff that and upset them because she was saying it, someone else would be going in saying, "Oh, don't worry about what you just said. That there's a lot of stress because of this client." But you'd have people covering for you, and I think that all of that time spent going around the art colleges for, for many, many years beforehand, there was a whole network of people that were young people that were coming through. And, and we used to take on people from the universities and the colleges and actually train them up, but a bit like the apprenticeship scheme that I had myself. But in fact, your last interview for the podcast was one of them that was Richard Holly and one of the earlier interviews you did was with Patrick Bangley yeah and Patrick was one of those where you meet them when they're at university and they don't just become your employees they become lifetime friends really you know sometimes they have to leave to move on and further their own career but um I think that and just treating people equally we used to try and I've mentioned humor a few times but we'd always try and do things that where we would spend time with the staff we'd take them all out we do I know that you're a bit like this with your own team in Maidstone where you get them together and go out for a drink socially yeah we would do that a lot um we'd put the card behind the bar and make sure that everyone all the time the car was behind the bar they were all having a drink on you the minute you left without the card then they, they could pay for their own but it was just, there was a lot of those sorts of little touches which were personal. And when someone was going through a tough time, they felt they could come in and sit down and talk to you and tell you that there were issues, issues that might mean they needed to change shift because they were on an early shift and they needed to work on, because we were a studio, so it was, it was literally 24 hours working and we just had a really nice way, I think, with people like Trevor and Patrick and several others that were all good managers. They were they were all 
we broke it down into groups. Each of them would be looking after about 10, 20 people right. rather than one boss looking after a hundred people. And it, it worked, but it's not easy. Like that bit is quite hard. I think actually getting that balance right with your staff much harder now, I think just because yeah. you're more likely to get it picked up for saying something that back then would have been just classed as humor. Agreed. Very different world now, mate. Right. Um, Phil, we need to move on now to to the the other side of your life, which I think a lot of people that you know might know you in the industry now will know you as uh, the founder of Podge. You know, is is uh, when you think you're, you're synonymous with that word Podge, and you know, I mean, the amazing thing that it is. But for those that don't have any idea what Podge is, the very few people. Can you tell us what Podge is and why you created it? Well, first of all, the name. The name is literally just, I, I don't know whether they have, have the same word in London, but in Manchester, if you went out drinking and eating, you would put on a Podge. So it was literally about food and drink and becoming fat if you eat too much or drink too much. Uh, but it was, I, I started it because when I sold my business in the 1980s, I was one of the people that was um, was deemed as being a success story by a lot of my clients. And all my clients back then were design agencies. And there was a recession around about the end of my earnout. So in the early 90s, it was pretty tough. And a lot of the people who had been my clients were struggling. And some of the bigger ones were actually going bust. And Michael Peters and Partners, there was Rodney Fitch, there was Smith and Milton, Small Bat Room, and they were all going down like nine pins and then quite often restarting, but under a different name. So it would be Smith and Milton Original or Michael Peters became NPL and so on and so on and so on. But really it was just a tough time. And I thought in the early 90s, when I'd just done this year, out of the industry and I was coming back into it, I thought it would be a nice thing to do to invite a lot of the people that were my ex-clients, get them all together for a lunch, split the bill between all of us, but give them a chance to talk to each other. And they were all owners. They were all like owners or senior people within the companies, but they never ever met each other because there was no reason to because they wanted to spend time with clients. They didn't want to spend time with rivals. And I just thought for this one-off lunch, I'll just get everyone together. I'll choose the venue, which was Quaglino's, uh, which had just been opened by Terence Conrad. But then I'll book the space, which is a private room at the top for 30 people. Uh, I'll do all the invitations, which were by phone or fax back then, 1994. And and we split the bill and that's it. It was always meant as a one-off idea. And it was so successful. And they really loved the fact that they could talk openly and honestly to their peers. That they asked me if I would do it again the following year and get them all together again. And which I said, yes, I'll do that. And that I moved it to the Atlantic Bar and Grill at that time, which was another quite cool venue. And that went on for about 10 years. And... It was always meant to be just a small, smallish group, which got to about 70 or 80 of them. 
And then the editor of New Media Age, Michael Notley, asked me whether I could do the same thing for digital because he came to one of my lunches and he said that you always seem to get the most senior people attending and we as a, a publisher never get that. We always, they always hand it down to more junior people. Would you help? And so I started Digital Podge in 2003. That's 20 years old this year. And then two years later, a good mate from the FA, who was one of my clients, was working in sport. And he said, why, why don't you make this work for sport, this podge thing that you do? And at the time, I had UK Sport as a client, UK Athletics, Sport England, Soccer X, the Premier League. And I thought, oh, well, why not? And we started Sports Podge. And that was 18 years ago. And randomly, a group of the agencies from up north, they were coming down to London every year, got me one evening at the Arts Club where we were hosting it at the bar. And they said, well, why don't you bring one up north and actually do one rather than us keep coming down here? Why don't you bring one up? So I started it. I called it Stodge Podge because of I, I love Manchester pies, especially Holland's meat potato pies and so on. I'll call it Stodge Podge. And again, thinking it might be a one-year, one-off. And that's now 12 years old. So somehow, in answer to your question, the whole Podge thing has become this entity that there are four a year for covering design, digital, sport, and the Manchester ones are mixed. And I love it. It's just so, such a nice thing to do because you're getting all these people together that would normally be in competition. And so many nice things come out of those meetings. You've been to a couple, so you know. Yeah. I read in Design Week last week, there was a piece about a design agency uh, called OPX who had just rebranded the Design Council. And in Design Week, he said that they met the chief exec of the Design Council uh, when she was doing a talk. What it didn't say in the article is that that was Podge and the... And I think you were there with me when Minnie Moles stood up and spoke about her plans for the design council. Yes. So this design agency just went and spoke to her about what they were doing. They've ended up creating the whole brand for design council just as a result of being there and then talking to the person sat on their table. And you can't put a price on that. It's brilliant. They would never have met. We had two weddings at Design Podge. <laughs> Again, just by the seating plan, which... You think the seats and plans are quite random, but they're actually quite well thought out of who you put near. So you were already married, so I didn't sit you near anyone single. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> how's, it, how's it changed over the years, Phil? Because you must have seen the change, you know, in people's careers, in the industry. I mean, as you said, you started with a, you know, the group of designers around a, a lunch and now it's grown into a national event across different industries and, so tell us a little bit about the change and how you see sort of Podge now. For me, it hasn't changed. It sort of, it sort of feels the same, right? But it's there's just more people in the room. There's you know whereas it was thirty in when was that nineteen ninety four where it was thirty people in a private room. Now it would be two hundred and fifty people at the IOD or the Dilly or you know wherever the venue is. Um, but the actual modus operandi is the same. Don't sell tables. No one can buy a table. You can only buy a place. And you don't know who you're going to be sat next to until you arrive. And 
there's no awards. You know, quite a few people said, I'll set up your old Podge Awards scheme. And I can't think of anything less likely to uh, a Podge. It's more, you want the people on every table to be able to talk to each other. And the whole idea is get them chatting to each other and nice things happen out of that. I think the one that's probably surprised me the most is the sports lunch, just because of the quality of the guest list and the seniority is quite scary. And so when you are used to standing up in front of a group of designers and letting them know what's going to happen, if you're suddenly stood up and you're seeing several of your heroes sat at tables, then it becomes quite scary. So I've, I've copped out a little bit. And now my daughter, Claire, who's been working on with me on Podge for years now, she's taking on more and more of those roles. She's, although she also is terrified, she's actually probably better at not showing it than I am. So I, I think my hands sometimes are shaking when I'm doing my thank yous and Claire they might be shaking, but I can't see them. She's just she does really, a great really job. good. She does. And I suppose one of the bees changes is that in those early days, probably for the first 10 years or more, it was just me. And when I started the digital college, it was just me. And I would probably have stopped doing it many years ago. I had Claire not stepped in. Right. And now she is an integral part of it. She's like my partner. And my son, PJ, he does all the websites for the for each lunch. Each lunch has its own website, and he does that. And Babs has found her role as operations. She sort of looks after everything that would fall through the cracks. Like when Claire and I are busy, she's the one going to school, picking up the kids, taking them swimming, doing all the things that Claire would have to do, uh, which she can't do. She's really busy building to a podge. So it's become more of a family business and that's that's why it's lasted so long brilliant love that love that you mentioned 28 years 1994 is 28 years yes since the first one 28 years well 30 years coming up soon be interesting to see what happens then 30 years onwards very interesting phil this is a little bit of a bittersweet moment for me because uh this podcast actually marks the end of your uh of your journey your our podcast journey together hopefully not the end of our friendship but you're going to hang up your footy boots and focus entirely on Podge, as we've been speaking about, and obviously your wonderful family. Yeah. So before we sign off, I wanted to ask you a few quick-fire questions. And this is like literally off the cuff, 30 seconds, off you go. So, Phil, yeah. what is your proudest career moment? I think probably getting brought into the Digital Hall of Fame. I think that was... Because I've never, I, I was someone at school that never got an award for anything. I was, I never passed any exams. I was always the person that would probably be back up the list. You know, when I look at my kids who both went to university, I never went to university. I didn't have any friends that went to university. So actually being nominated in that first 10 people for the Beamer Digital Hall of Fame, that was quite a big deal for me and um, quite amazing. So yeah. I've still got no idea how I got chosen, but I think it was to do with me building communities rather than having a specific thing. Like I didn't invent the internet, <laughs> but I did help build communities that made the most perhaps from, from that. Brilliant. I think I agree with that. What's uh, one of the biggest lessons you've learned in your career? I think 
there's an awful lot of people focus on what they're doing at any given point and are too busy to say yes to something that sounds not important enough for them to spend time on it. And I think over the years, the things that have had the effect on me, especially as I've reached an age where most people are unemployable, I was always being offered things and quite often those links you could trace back to something that happened 25, 30 years ago, including, I might say, working with you because right. we, you and I have worked together three years and the podcast have been going right through the uh, pandemic, but I would never have met you had it not been for somebody that you were chatting to at the DBA saying you should talk to Phil and that person I hadn't seen previously for over 20 years. Wow. But um, a few years before, I'd helped them when they were looking for some career advice on what to do next. And I just went and had a coffee with that young man, Will Hawkins, gave him some advice. And lo and behold, I, the last three years I spent with you came through that connection. So I, I would say just say yes more often than you say no. And don't always think about the present. Just think a lot of those people could be really useful to you in the years to come. Brilliant, brilliant. Have you, do you have any uh, have any career regrets? No, not really. I, I can't think of any. There's nothing, nothing that springs to mind. There's always things you think you could have done better, but to be honest, it's been quite a fun journey. And I'm not dead yet, by the way. I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I know I'm just getting a little bit older. Yeah, yeah, just a little bit, only a little bit. you still got more hair than me. I've definitely got more of it, but it's a lot whiter. But, you know, there's a lot of it. The Gandalf here. Okay, so Phil, what are some of your best memories from uh, almost three years, as you said, of meeting wonderful people on the podcast? Pop, you know what? We have had 40 people that we've interviewed, and I've got no idea where the time went. That no. seems to have gone really quickly. And the collection of individuals has been absolutely freaking amazing when you look at what where they've come from. I think a few of the ones that I would maybe single out is more because of a little story that they told us that they probably not shared with anybody else, just little things that um, one of them was Ben Ryan and Ben Ryan coached Fiji to gold in the Olympics. And then when Ben was telling the story to you and I, and he was looking at his career options and he got offered a job in Fiji and between saying yes and going over there, there'd been a coup. That's right. <laughs> at the island, and he, all of a sudden he was dealing with someone uh, who was who had just forced themselves into power, and, and I thought that was quite an amazing story. And they actually gave him or bought him a plot of land in Fiji. That's right. Which, a story like that is quite pretty. I thought that um, Steve Abbott, who was on, who was always been in the music industry, and I thought when he told us a story about the Elton John. Candle in the Wind song at Lady Di's funeral. And it was actually him that came up with that idea. Right. And it was him that then had to sell the idea into Elton John about singing that. And then Elton John said, there's no way that Bernie Taupin would change the lyrics to, to make it work. But um, Steve said that he had another a backup singer and Overnight, Elton John rang him back and told him that actually he managed to get Bernie to change the lyrics. I thought that was like an incredible story. 
And yeah. I think Bill Sweeney, Bill Sweeney was chief executive of Team GB when he was over at the Sochi Games. Uh, Putin was there. There were lots of security. And Princess Anne was there. Did you remember this story? And yeah. He said that as the chief executive of Team GB, he needed to go over and see Princess Anne and, and he had to get through the the chairs, through other people. So he started to climb over people to get to Princess Anne. And then he suddenly saw laser beams on his jacket where he could tell that the snipers <laughs> positioned around the ground were actually holding in because they thought he was some sort of loony making their way over to, to Princess Anne. And that was just hilarious. And and maybe the last one would uh, Mark Lewis, who is teaches at the School of Communication Arts, and he gives so much to the students and gives gives back. But he was a multimillionaire when he was only in his early twenties, right? And he actually, when he tells us the story, which was another lovely story, he said he actually didn't like himself and he didn't like what he'd become and fancy cars and and he went back into teaching and giving back and again he's one of the smartest people and he's got a life that he loves rather than a life where he was quite rich and could have been could have carried on so i would say amongst them all those are four of the stories but so many great stories dan so many and and 40 is a nice round number for me yeah almost reflecting your age mate i know with some amazing stories and some amazing guests and um and i was remembering that i was thinking about some of the craig johnston and carol whitworth and some of the stories that they shared and we had the song remember carol did the song for us and just oh, carol yeah well she was celebrating her 40th anniversary of running a design agency home right she plays in a band called doreen doreen and she's just a fantastic lady like a real personality I think, did she get a ukulele out for us? I think she may have. Yeah, she did. Craig Johnson, the only one we had to put into two episodes. Because if you remember, he, he just had so many stories that we had to split it into episode one and episode two for Craig. And It was absolutely brilliant. Oh, wonderful. Some great, great memories. Was there a guest that got away, the one we didn't get together? Was there one that we think, oh, I wish we could have spoken to? I think, Probably a couple, but one for you and one for me, really. Because I think for you, I would have loved to have got David Dean or uh, Arsene Wenger. Yeah. Because that would have been, for you, You'd have, your hands would have been shaking and you'd have got so much out of that. And that would have been amazing. And for me, if we could have got Sir Alex Ferguson, uh, apart from the fact that a bit like Gordon Young, we probably wouldn't have understood half of what he said with his Scottish accent. I, I just think he's he's amazing. More than one person, when asked about who they wanted to be in the lift with, said Arsene Wenger. True. I think three of the forty said that, and so those people are special. Um, so maybe they're the ones that got away, but we never invited them, so that's our fault. Yeah, that's true. And we, we've had a cracking, cracking guest there. So, Phil, a final question. What are you most excited about, um, apart from leaving me, what are you most excited about as you embark on the next stage of your journey? I, I just love the whole thing about being able to work with your family. Yeah. That is a gift not everyone 
gets to do that, they, you know, most people, their kids go off in different directions. They move to different locations and, and with the three grandchildren, uh, absolutely amazing. The little Frank, Kimberly, and our son has now got Madeline. They send us little videos every day of something that Madeline's done. So this week she's just said Dada for the first time and said, Mama, since it's not your first two words, but we were there seeing it because a little iPhone and it's it's what it is it's a blessing, really. And then having Claire and PJ involved in Podge doing different things is just fantastic. But I, I love it. So spending more time with them, uh less distractions because quite often one one of the problems i had working with you and if anyone else i've worked with over the last 20 years is that i always feel as though i'm not doing enough because i always compare it with how i used to be when i was running an agency and how much time i would spend in the evenings going out with people how early i would get into work every morning and all of the things that you took home or well, when you're doing it as a non-exec or a mentor, you don't do any of that really. It's like, it's a lot easier, but it still stops you thinking about stuff like where you're going next on holiday or planning a holiday that doesn't clash with something. So I'm just really looking forward to spending a lot more, a lot more nice family time and helping Claire and helping PJ spending more time with Babs, Lady Babs. <laughs> Amazing. Lady Babs, should we say. Phil, it's been an absolute amazing honour and pleasure to uh, spend this time with you on the podcast and just to build something together, which I think has been incredible. Like you say, 40 guests and incredible stories. I mean, we've heard things I don't think have ever been said in public before, and we've spent time with amazing people. So thank you for everything. And uh, yeah, may you have a brilliant journey with your family and with Podge. Thank you, Dan. And the same to your team, who are absolutely amazing. Uh, really you've got a nice team there do great work and it, i'm proud to spend three years with you cheers my dears cheers my dears thank you for tuning in to the wonderful people podcast this podcast is brought to you by wonderful creative agency find out more at thewonderful.co.uk